What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 15 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. In this episode, we covered a grip load of stuff, including muffling. We wanted to talk about how you muffle your drums between gaff tape, buzz kills, moon gel, cotton balls, and everything. So Mike and I give our opinions on that. We also get into a little bit of education discussing Jim Riley's article on Ghost Notes. We'll discuss this month's cover artist, Mr. Dom Famularo. And in our gear review section, we'll check out the new 19-inch and 20-inch Zildjian K-Custom Dark Crashes. And as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. It is episode 15. Mr. Mike Dawson, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. Doing good. It's been a, a crazy... What day is it? Is it? Why are you asking me? <laughs> Send an email to Amber. She'll let both of us know. <laughs> I think it's Wednesday. I think last week we talked on Wednesday. Uh, yeah, it's Wednesday. And I, I spent the weekend jet setting to Vegas for one gig. So it kind of screwed me up all over the place. And we had uh, you know the, the time change as well. Ooh, double whammy. So you were in Vegas just for a day? Yeah. An uh, artist I play with named Shane Gamble got booked to play just a big show there and they they had a budget to fly his band in and put us up so we went in i left friday morning at 7 a.m from new jersey landed in vegas about 2 p.m or 1 30 p.m and then wow. played a show that night till 12 30 and then was back on a plane at 7 a.m on saturday morning <laughs> it was intense <laughs> i bet and how, how long was the gig how it, many was, songs? it was only two sets Okay. So two covers four, or originals? Uh, mostly originals, and we I think we did like four or five covers. It is a country music venue, so they they have like line dancing and stuff. So we try to throw in a few covers that they could at least recognize. Gotcha. But mostly original. It was cool. It was all backline, so I only had to bring. I really didn't have to bring anything, but I brought cymbals, snare drum, uh, pedal sticks. You know. The comfort. Yeah, and I, comfort. I learned. Uh, I learned a couple. Well, I had a couple scary moments. Uh, I usually take two snare drums to every gig. A wood one and a metal okay. one. I have a usually a, a six and a half by fourteen wood and a six and a half by fourteen metal, just in case one room's too dark or too bright or whatever. For this, I just took one drum, you know. So I was going to this gig with just one drum, and they actually the backline kid didn't have a snare. He he asked me if it'd be okay without a snare. I'm like, sure, I got a drum. I'm all good. So we get playing and <laughs> get going and sound check. And on this drum, I had I had a made a, a dumb mistake. I put one at like a cheap Asian made single ply head on it so we got like two songs into the sound check and i look down and like every backbeat it's just getting more divoted and more divoted oh, no. <laughs> no so we did three songs in sound check and by the end of it it was it was it was ruined i thought for sure oh that, my god i thought for sure i was gonna just tear the drum wide open now are you at this point like thinking what is the nearest music store or well i was thinking i didn't bring any tape so I couldn't have just patched it up. I was just thinking, all right, don't hit the center of the drum anymore until showtime. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great feeling to have when someone's paid a ton of money for you to fly across the country to play two sets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, it was amateur hour. I was like, man, I can't believe I did this. Oh. I should have at least put a coated emperor or something or just throwing a spare you head. You just run over to like the Blue Man group and be like, look, does your drum set player have like an extra head? I'm in a lot of trouble. We're over at the Sands. <laughs> it was terrifying. I never had that happen before because I don't break drum heads. I mean, I, they dent up eventually, but this was like one you know, one hard rim shot. It was You could see it just going down oh. and down. <laughs> Dude. Oh, that's, that's no good, man. But you yeah. got through the gig. 
Yeah, and I, and I completely forgot about it by Showtime. I just had to keep t- tightening the head up just to make sure that it was it wasn't going to just tear off the collar. But yeah, I mean, I made it through wow. the gig and it was all good. But I will I will never travel without at least a spare head ever again. Oof. That's that's scary, man. That's scary, <laughs> yeah. especially when it's especially like you know if it's your band, it's one thing. You know when it's like it's you and your buddies and your band, but then when it's it's a hired gig, oh, that's that's nerve wracking for sure. Yeah, to say the least. So yeah, <laughs> and I and I didn't know about a, a bass drum pedal. What they'd have, they end up having a nice pedal, but I, I I don't have anything that can collapse into a like a carry on bag. Except for an old, oh, yeah, yeah. old Ludwig Speed King, so I ended up just taking that just in case. Thank God I didn't have to use it because that would have been awful. But <laughs> no, thank you, no, thank Sweet you. King. Neither speedy yeah. or kingly. <laughs> it is not none of it is neither of those for sure. I, I yeah. grew up that was the uh, the school the Sacramento school music program pedal it, when yeah. I went from you know uh, grade school to junior high to high school. No matter where I went, that Speed King was on an old you know, Ludwig kit somewhere. Like, yeah. God. Yeah. I like but the it. Built, it built my foot speed. So I don't mind. <laughs> it's not bad. I mean, it's, it's still kind of cool for playing lighter jazz stuff. Cause it's such a light pedal, but if I would have had to sure. use that on this gig, I think it probably would have just blown apart. So, <laughs> luckily they had a DW 3000 that, that I could use. <laughs> oh, the three. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it, the, the three feels good. It's just, you know, that at any minute, like, it's like you think like, okay, this feels a lot like a five, yet it's half the price. They must have saved money somewhere, <laughs> and it's probably in this spring that's about to snap off. <laughs> oh, yeah. man, that's but funny. But I made it through. So what happened? Uh, actually, I saw you announced uh, a, a drum camp with JP and Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so what's up with that? Matthew, yeah. So uh, we announced the Common Thread Drum Camp. And what this was was just, you know, we were thinking, okay, it's been a year since we did our last Common Thread Clinic tour, which is myself, Matt Halpern, and J.P. Bouvet. And it was time to do something. And we, and we have some plans to go um, to some other countries fairly soon. But we wanted, we really wanted to kind of do something a little more in depth. So a camp was like the perfect thing. And I had just done the camp with Mark and Sput in Ireland. And I was able to let Matt and J.P. know, like, hey, this worked out really well. And the campers really got a lot out of this. So... I think it'd be cool. So yeah, yesterday we just uh, we announced that we are coming to upstate New York in February. Um, it's at a place called Full Moon Resort, and it's going to be uh, I think it's a four day camp. It's February fourth through the seventh, and it's all inclusive. The meals are included. The the stay is included. And this is where Benny Greb does his drum camps, and I I think quite a few drum camps have been done there. But it's a really nice place, and so um, it'll be four days with myself, Matt, and JP, just kind of. You know, teaching the way the stuff that we teach that's important to us, but also teaching kind of the the other core values of just being able to keep your attitude up while you're playing this frustrating instrument. Um, talk about life, talk about you know endorsements, everything that people want to get into. And as far as the skill level, honestly, all you need is a general knowledge of drum set playing. Uh, this isn't like an advanced camp or a beginner camp. Uh, between myself, JP, and Matt. <clears throat> you know, we really tailor the education to the people that are in front of us. So that's going to be in February. And uh, you can actually just go to commonthreaddrumcamp.com to sign up. And uh, I think we I think we have 30 total spots open. So it's going to be a nice big group that will eventually become a huge family. Is uh, lift tickets included? You're going to be there in February. <laughs> that's that's right. Well, I, uh, I I said in the video that I just want to see Halpern out there rocking some snow angels. Um, <laughs> 
I've heard what I was told was you will really enjoy the view. Just don't go outside. It should be pretty uh, inspirational, you know, and the three of us, I think one thing that people will feed off of more than our drumming will be our friendship and when they see the respect we have for each other and the, and the fact that all three of us have websites that are you know in the educational world all three of us are trying to have you know some face time and some some notoriety on the minor roster yet the three of us support each other like nobody's business and it lets other people around us know like okay you don't have to be cutthroat you don't have to be Steve Jobs trying to squash everybody you can be supportive. And once you realize that Matt Halpern's success and J.P. Bouvet's success will never affect me or will never affect you, then you just start supporting people. And it it's awesome because then you're just proud of your buddies. It's like, dude, like Matt just put out his first book. It's a bunch of transcriptions of periphery yeah, stuff. Saw that. It's How cool. is the success of that book going to negatively affect anyone's career? It won't. So just support it. You know, The first thing that happened as soon as he released it was J.P. and I – promoted his new book you know on our personal facebook pages and said hey check it out this is awesome so i I think that people will gain a lot of that um the drumming is a no-brainer you're going to get it no matter what but i think when they see that friendship and see that they could have that with their local drum buddies it'll be it'll be pretty cool so yeah cool you ready to talk about some important stuff like muffling your drum yeah that's a good one let's talk about it Let's do it. So right off the bat, I think we know that we have a lot of different substances that we can use to muffle. Um, Gaff tape or duct tape was probably my first thing that I used back in the day. Um, Went from that to zero rings. I don't know if you remember those. Do they still make those? Yeah, I still use them too. (laughs) They're awesome. So I went to zero rings um, because that's what my drum teacher had on his kit at my local music store. And then when I started touring, I heard of this amazing stuff called gaff tape, which was like duff or duct tapes kind of stud older brother then moon gels came out now the vader buzzkill and then even in the recent benny greb dvd he was talking about how he was putting cotton balls in his floor tom mm-hmm. so that they kind of jump up in the air when he hits the drum and then they naturally dampen it and i remember even dave weckel had a really cool thing that remo made that was like a little pad that would jump up in the air and then kind of yeah. muffle your drum do you remember that is yeah. that still on the market too i think so you know i tried it once and i hit it with a stick and it just exploded <laughs> it went all over the place I that's mean, it not was... dave's fault that's not dave didn't make the dang thing that's the engineers over at remo yeah it was, <laughs> I mean, it was kind of neat to see the piston go up and down because what right. it does is like it opens it releases from the head when you hit it and then settles down so it's more like a gate like a noise gate totally i thought it was a great idea yeah um, but I, I mean i i must be i don't know how i hit it but i did and it just went into a million pieces nice man so what is like what was your kind of, I guess, guess growth of uh, learning about muffling your drums? Did you ever do anything crazy or silly? Well, the day one when I got my first real drum set, it was uh, I wanted I just do some hand towels over the toms. Oh, nice! That was the first thing. It just just oh that, and it sounded cool. It sounded like a Ramones record or something I wanted it to sound like. So I did that right. for for a while. I just thought that's what you did. You know, you just of course you put t-shirts <laughs> and put stuff towel. over your drums. <laughs> So I started with that and then... But not in the drums. You're talking on top of the head. Yeah, just like covering the heads. Yeah. Yeah, nice. all you know, snare toms. And that was my... If we're just talking snare and toms, I started with that and then I got into... Uh, I don't even know how, why. I, I guess because I remember the internal mufflers having been like a round felt disc. So, sure. So I would just take like a cymbal felt and okay. ta- and then put that on the head and then tape it with electrical tape or whatever I had. Oh, Nice. So that was like my second thing. All my drums had these 
black felts taped to the heads. And then let's see, where did it go from there? Um, I never really got into the zero rings early on. Uh, that was much later when I got into working in the studios, I started using those. So I guess I went straight from there to like no muffling whatsoever when I got into jazz. Yeah, of did that for a while. Except for the snare drum, I'd always have at least one moon gel on the snare drum. Okay. So yeah, I got into moon gels, and then as I got into being a home studio owner, it's all it became just everything, anything and everything. Uh, what I really like now is is white duct tape. Oh, okay. Because you yeah, can yeah. you just put you can put that on the head, and it's not distracting visually. It looks like the you know looks like the drum head material. Sure. So that's usually my go-to. Or if I have a couple of containers of moon gels, I'll still grab those or the buzz kills um, or the rings if I need them. Um, the big fat snare drum. I mean, anything. I learned a good trick from yeah. uh, from Steve Jordan to get that, like, you know, the tune Vultures by John Mayer? Yeah, of course. That super fat, like, deep 70s snare drum. He gets that by taking a paper towel, tearing it in half, folding each of those into a square and then taping both of those on the drum head about, uh, let's see, maybe at 11 and one. If you're looking at the drum, like a clock, he tapes those on with, with gaffers tape, two of them, and then tunes the drum all the way down. And that's that vulture sound. Wow. Works on almost any drum. Yeah, no, no, I I used to do that a lot. I didn't know that it was a a cool thing i was actually quite embarrassed of it so now that steve jordan does it i can bring it back into my setup yeah i mean it's kind of like whatever you need to do at this point for me yeah no i mean sound should be the overriding factor for sure my my journey was much sillier for sure uh and i think it was because i didn't have you know real access in the very beginning to like drum dvds um i would you know i wasn't reading modern drummer until later so i wasn't seeing people's actual setup the setups i was seeing would be the ads which has no muffling on them at all right um you know and so and i wasn't going to gigs i mean i was just a kid but i did hear a rumor that um lars ulrich had i was like man how does he get that click and so i was like oh you don't know he uses tinfoil inside his bass drum and I was like, what? And I'm like all balled up. And they're like, no, no, no. You line the inside of your shell with tinfoil. So I did it. <laughs> I had my Jugs percussion kit and the kick drum was completely lined with two sheets of uh, tinfoil. Wow. And I was convinced that it worked and it did not at all. Um, so I, I, that's that's where it started. And then I think from there I went to um, uh, – I, I did tape for a while but it never stuck because I didn't have like – you know, duct tape. I was just using like scotch tape and stuff. Yeah. And then I went from that straight to uh, weather stripping. And that was awesome mm. because it, it stuck really well and it had foam attached to it. So I'd actually do like an internal on the inside of the head. I would do a full line of weather stripping. Right, so right. it wasn't on the outside. And that was like, that was awesome. I used that forever. That's um, that Steve Gadd sound. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, yeah, it's funny to hear Steve Gadd's kit in the, uh, in that Buddy Rich memorial, um, yeah. it's like Weckles wide open Yamaha, Vinny's wide open, probably Yamaha, and then and then Steve just duh, duh, and it duh. sounds so good. It does, does, it totally does. You can hear every note. So yeah, so I did that, and I think you know muffling is also really really dependent on the room. And most of us grow up playing in our parents' garage or something very echoey or a bedroom with no you know sound treatment, and so you know you're just trying to kind of kill the kit so I, I did that for a while then i found zero rings i skipped moon gel altogether just because my ocd would not allow for those blue things on my white coated yeah, heads yeah. um and then i went 
for a long time to no muffling whatsoever. And then just recently, um, I started muffling a lot more. And, and I think a lot of it actually even has to do with our technology. I started realizing, well, people are not listening to me on great, you know, studio speakers. People are listening to me through their phone. And a, a real natural wide open kit sounds horrible through your phone speakers. Yeah, and then definitely. if you listen listen to like somebody like uh, Ash Sowen, and he's got that real 70s dead fusion sound. If you listen to that through your phone on his Instagram feed, it sounds fantastic. Yep, yep. So, yeah, I started muffling a lot more. So now I'm using the um, Vader Buzzkills. And then also Aquarian just came out with tone tabs. Have you checked those out yet? I have not seen those yet. So what those are is I guess it's actually just a single ply of mylar. So it's another ply of drumhead. But it's sticky on the bottom. So when you put it on, it's just like using gaff tape or whatever. But you can actually hit it because it's drumhead material, and it won't change the tone. Okay. It won't change your rebound or anything. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm going to start kind of trying those out and abing those verses. Like, how many of those do I have to use to get the same deadness I would get out of one Vader buzz kill? You know. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing too is uh, on my side snare, I recently just realized, you know what? Maybe. That internal muffling system that the broadcaster comes with, maybe I should use it instead of it being a decoration. And it totally works. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't need anything on my side snare. It's so dead. I just turned on the in- internal muffling and boom, it's just bef- done. Yeah, I mean, I think awesome. those, the, the bad mojo with those things is when you're a kid and, and you think you have to crank it all the way. So it ends up pushing the head up like a bubble. Right. But totally. all, all you have to do is get it to just barely touch the head, and, and it just gets rid of all that high ring. Totally. No, it's cool. I mean, it's great for a side snare. Um, it You do lose some of the response from the head itself, so it it's perfect for a side snare. You know, I have the internal muffling on the whole broadcaster kit. I don't use it. I use it a little bit on the bottom floor tom head, and that seems to help a lot because oh, okay. it comes with top and bottom muffle. Um but, uh, but yeah, so it, it's cool. But you guys out there, please just explore muffling your drums and just see what different sounds you can get out of them. That's, it's all based around sound. So to say that one muffling device is better or worse than the other is silly. Have you ever taped a piece of paper to your snare drum head? You mean and hit it? Yeah, like a piece of notebook paper. Just, no. Yeah, do it. Do it today. I'm doing it. It's- I'm not scared. <laughs> I'll take your challenge, Dawson. <laughs> it's another it just deadens it but the paper also adds that like a little bit of brightness Snap. yeah yeah that's a matt chamberlain trick how long does it take before you go through the paper it depends on what you're playing but it, you know just, right that's i saw that i i was um i'm always google searching guys names and studio to see what their drums look like in the studio and and one of matt chamberlain's snares i think it's a wood hoop uh ayot or something he has like yellow uh, notebook paper taped on it. Really? Yep. So and it looks I'm like it's it. been there for years. So yeah, I would uh, <laughs> give it a shot. Well, he's kind of he's kind of amazing. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, let's move into some educational stuff. Uh, so in this issue, the December issue of Modern Drummer, you had uh, Jim Riley, and uh, he's is he still Rascal Flatts drummer? Yeah. You know, I don't even know how long it's been. It's been at least a decade at this point. He's their drummer and musical director. You can tell how up-to-date my country knowledge is. <laughs> but it took me a while even just to, I was like, is he still, what's that band's name? Rascal Flats. So he, he's been kind of dominating on that scene for quite a while. That's yeah, a, that's a yeah. huge gig. I mean, I saw him with the Flats at Madison Square Garden. It's been five oh years. God. They sold out Madison Square Garden. So, Oh, my God. Huge, Freaking huge show. Country. And I got to sit right by the, the front of house mixing board. And, man, it was amazing. 
amazing show. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, you had him write an article um, for the educational stuff in the um, in the pocket section, and this was on Ghost Notes. So I wanted to kind of discuss a little bit. I mean, the the article itself is just really getting people used to playing Ghost Notes before and after the backbeat. And that, you know, gives your groove a lot of texture. But I wanted to talk more about our journey into ghost notes and textured drumming, you know, because in the beginning for me, it was it was definitely just uh, Quiet Riot and Guns N' Roses and (laughs) ghost notes didn't make the cut. Yeah. And then at some point I heard some more textured drumming that I couldn't replicate with my monotone style of playing. And that's when I learned about the other side of dynamics. You know, to me, I always had a full volume knob so I could play quiet and I could play loud, but there was no individual dynamics from stroke to stroke. Um, All the strokes were the same volume. And so it wasn't until my teens, um, you know, where I started seeing Dave Weckl and, and, um, you know, Vinny and even some of the bands in my teens that were using that stuff, you know, I'd try to play like a, an Alice in Chains song and there was, you know, some ghost notes and some textured snare drum stuff. So like, when did it was, did you have a private teacher that really brought it into your focus or was it you listening to music and realizing that you couldn't achieve that sound without adding something? It was, I mean, when I got serious about drums was right when alternative music kind of took over. Uh, and that was the big push to go back to natural kind of recording. So the drum sounds, they weren't using gates. There was less reverb. You could kind of hear all the nuance. So it was, and that, there was like a transition period between before Nirvana took over and then when this kind of alternative rock stuff, like with Guns N' Roses and uh, uh, The Cult, actually. Right. The Cult's, uh, which record was it before Ceremony? I can't remember which one it was, but Mickey Curry's on the drums, and there's a lot of subtlety on that record. So that was one of the first, but it was really it, it was probably Pearl Jam's first record. Yes, and that's that's uh, that's is that Matt Chamberlain? No, that's Dave Krusen on the first record. Okay, so Matt Chamberlain is in the video for Alive. Dave yep. Krusen is on the album, yep. and then Dave Abrazis took over after that. Yes, exactly. Jeez Louise. So it was the first Pearl Jam record with Dave Krusen where I started to hear all the snare drum stuff. And then right when, and shortly after that record came out, they did MTV Unplugged. Yep. With oh, Dave yeah. Abrazis. And there was so much subtlety going on. I probably watched that. I taped that performance and watched it every day for probably some age 13 to 17. It was huge for me. That was definitely my biggest influence at that time was... In, in my school, and I don't know if it was like this worldwide, but in my school, you were divided into Pearl Jam or Nirvana. And I chose the Pearl Jam side of things. And and there were other bands that went along with that, you know, but it was like, okay, which Seattle scene are you into? And it was like, oh, man, I love Pearl Jam. Nirvana's cool. I love Soundgarden because I can't play that stuff. Yeah. And and I'm not into uh, Candlebox. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but no, I mean, that, you know, 10, obviously, I think everyone of our generation kind of learned the subtlety on the snare drum through, you know, probably Dave Cruzen from learning yeah. Jeremy and learning Alive and Evenflow. And and then you get deeper into the album and get into Black and you're, you're kind yeah. of playing the Pearl Jam ballads, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, Jeremy, sorry, was on the second album. That was uh, Dave Abrazis's first no, that was, that was on the first record. It was? Jeremy? Yep. yep. Okay. That was like the so, second stream of singles from that first record. How, how are we? We're turning, <laughs> we're turning this ghost note thing into a Pearl Jam thing. Okay, let's stay focused on <laughs> ghost notes. They're amazing. Okay, so, so let's go to my other ghost notes influence, which is probably way more important, is Dennis Chambers. Okay. Because he 
I mean, I bought his video serious moves, and he's also from Baltimore, and I'm I'm from Maryland, so he's kind of the the drum god of my of my childhood. So I bought his video serious moves, and I mean, his ghost notes are absurd. Every he doesn't he can never I don't think he ever plays without just crushing ghost notes and everything he does. So basically, my whole approach to ghost notes is just from him, and it, it's filling in the space to go from one accent to the other. Right. I've had to learn to not use ghost notes in the past like 10 years because it was just all I, I, I couldn't play without them because of Dennis. Right. Thanks, Dennis. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, yeah, and they also not only do they become a textural thing, but they become a timekeeper. You know, you're filling in really you're filling in, like you said, the space between the main notes. Yeah. So even if you're playing a quarter note groove, somehow it's actually a 16th note groove because of how many ghost notes you're adding in to keep time. And then when you take them out, you just feel so naked because there's so much space between the notes. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my main influence for ghost notes was definitely uh, David Garibaldi. And oh, yeah. I started working on future sounds and it was just painfully obvious that those grooves are horrible if you can't play the accents in the ghost notes. They're right. so busy on their own, you know, and then and then once you go to the red and blue audio tape cassette tape that came with the book and you listen to it you're like there's no way that's the same groove that's written on page 42 there's no way that's you know groove study number one and then you just start working on it and you got to get that snare down and down and down you know and and then it becomes for me it became a height thing i just thought okay if i can keep this stroke under two inches of height it will become a ghost note so it wasn't even just a sound thing it became a visual thing you know Mm. like i have to keep it down keep it down and then i also learned too with ghost notes and i do this with my students is i tried really hard to tell them stop playing a normal stroke and then right before it hits you try to make it quiet that is what's ruining the feel just don't bring it up in the first place yeah. You know, don't don't bring the stick up and then try to slow it down. Just don't bring it up. Just drop it from like a nice horizontal position and that'll be perfect. And it'll it'll relax your groove and your time and your feel so much. Yeah, I've always thought of the ghost notes and the hi hat being intertwined. So they should you like if you record yourself playing a ghost note heavy groove, you should have a hard time figuring out what's the hi hat and what's the snare drum. That's kind of my approach. Yeah. They should just blend and that's a Matt Chamberlain thing as well. Matt Chamberlain, totally. So that's, yeah, I yeah. can never tell. I'm like, is that a shaker, a, a hi-hat, a ghost note? Yeah. Uh, did a random just goat walk by and clap <laughs> its heels together? What the hell is going on? Yeah. yeah. Um, if you can't tell people, uh, Mike and I are fairly huge fans of Matt Chamberlain. <laughs> and if you haven't checked out Critter's Buggin, the old Tori Amos stuff, the early Fiona Apple stuff, you know that that was coming out at the same time that Mike and I are talking about Pearl Jam and everything. And that's that was that was my kind of first, I guess, non-mainstream influence in drumming was Critters Buggin, the Tori Amos stuff. Because you know, I, I was dating the weird chicks in school that were cutting themselves or whatever, <laughs> whatever those. <laughs> <sorry>. <laughs> you guys can't see on Skype, but Mike literally just about spit his water out. <laughs> wow, what a confession! <laughs> sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was just attracted to people that needed a little bit of help in their life, so. Uh, anyways, the, those, those types of girls were always listening to Tori Amos and I was like, oh, I don't want to listen to this crap. But I was like, but the drumming is sick. Who is this? And that led me down the, so if, you know, young women of the nineties didn't cut themselves to get attention, I wouldn't know about Matt Chamberlain. So let's just give it up to the emo scene. Shan't we? Oh man. And Fiona, geez, there's another one. Yeah. Yeah. That, the Fiona's. <laughs> 
that was the stuff. Um, there's a song you guys should check it out. Just go to YouTube or Google it, but it's called Fast As You Can. Um, not sure what which album it's on, but check out Fast As You Can. And that's one of those songs. It's like a drum and bass thing that Matt Chamberlain's playing. And then it goes into not a halftime feel, but a we slowed the tempo down feel, which oh, yeah. is really weird. Um, but that's one of those songs where it's like, I can't tell what's percussion and what's drum set. It's just a sound of rhythm, and it's awesome. Is that the one that actually has a drum solo overdubbed? Yep. Yeah, that was a yeah. single. So, I mean, that's that's pretty cool that they actually released a single with a drum solo in it. Yeah. yeah, and and it's it's just so rich and thick. And then he was doing uh, Edie Brickell, right, in the New Bohemians. Yeah, he was on that second record, which is yeah, that was I think that might have been his first session. We we posted a when I interviewed him a couple of years ago. I went through his discography and we chatted about everything. So there is something on ModernDrummer dot com where he talks about you know like a paragraph about all these landmark records in his discography. And nice. that that Edie Brickell record is one of them, and he he talks about that being his first major session and. He wanted to sound just like Manu Cachet, so he set up a bunch of cymbals and a bunch of tight-sounding toms and stuff. It's a cool record. It doesn't sound like Matt Chamberlain. I think it's—I can't remember the name of the record, Ghost of a Dog or something like that. Okay. I just remember it being like when I got into him through Fiona Apple and Tori Amos, that was— the only backward step I made was going to find the Edie Brickell album because I was I was like, I have to know what this guy's playing on. And I think, honestly, that might have been my first alert that there were drummers in this world. You know, I mean, this is early on in my development. I didn't, I thought every artist was a band. I didn't know that there was, you know, like, oh, John Robinson played on these albums. He's a session drummer. I didn't know what a session drummer was. So I was like, wait, that's crazy that Fiona Apple and Tori Amos have the same drummer. I didn't realize that it wasn't a band. That he got hired to do the album, you know. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, well, then what else is he on? And it, and then, it like, you know, I talked about it, I think, maybe two podcasts ago or last podcast about, like, I realized that whoever my favorite drummer was, it was actually Matt Chamberlain or Josh Freeze. No yeah. matter who I thought was in the band, every time I'd open the CD jacket, it was those two guys. You know, yeah. And I saw tour. Uh, no, I saw I saw Tori, but then I saw Fiona Apple on not her last tour, but the tour before, and she had Charlie Drayton on drums. Who? Wow, is kind of an unsung hero. He's another one of those guys where you you don't think you know him, but you you definitely know him. You First do. of all, he <laughs> he played on Love Shack. I mean. Oh wow! Yeah, that's him. That's his snare drum that defined that song. So he's another one that's got amazing control of. I mean, his act, his accents hit like a, like a shotgun, and his ghost notes are really subtle. So he's, he's on some B fifty two stuff. He's on the replacements record, all shook down. Yep, uh, tons of stuff in that like that transition alternative era, like a nineteen eighty eight to ninety one kind of era. Tons of sessions, wow. so definitely That's look awesome. him up. Charlie Drayton, he's he's a okay. badass. So, on a scale of one to ten, how on point do you think we stayed with John Riley's Ghost Note article? His name is Pretty Jim. Good? His name is Jim Riley. Jim Riley. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up! I'm I'm done, dude. I, sorry. I, <laughs> you know, I did drum days with John Riley. Ugh. Jim Riley's, you know, got cool jeans. I it, I I have. A, I'm having trouble keeping them together. Oh man, <laughs> His name's I, Jim Riley. <laughs> uh, how on point do you think we stayed on Jim Riley's article on Ghost Notes? Pretty good. Good enough. There's there's good. twelve really cool Ghost Note beats in the article, and he talks about six different ways to think of adding Ghost Notes. So it's it's a nice organized piece. It's a primer. It's kind of a basics on Ghost Notes. Boom. Bob's your uncle. All right, let's talk about your cover artist, Mister Dom Famularo. So. <laughs> 
give me a little bit of history of Dom. Like, when did you guys? I mean, it seems like he's been, uh, you know, kind of an ambassador for education for as long as I can remember. So, when when has he been on the scene forever? When did he show up? And has he always been an educator, or was was he kind of a, a touring guy? A lot of that is covered in the story, so I don't, I don't necessarily want to completely recap it. But let's just okay, say sure. that I mean, he was he and Modern Drummer's founder. Ron Spagnardi knew each other just as you know drummers on the scene around New York and New Jersey, and they talked about Modern Drummer before it existed, and they talked wow. about the Modern Drummer Festival before it ever happened. So Dom has kind of been a key figure in the entire state of the drum industry as we know it. He's He was, I mean, the uh, Buddy Rich Memorial Concert was his idea. Yep. Really? Okay. Yeah, drum festivals in general were largely his is doing at least around new york so he had a just a major player he was a i mean he he kind of took roy burns one step further you know roy was the first kind of drum clinician to go to england and around the u.s and dom took it one step and he's the the first guy to just travel the world as a drum clinician so he's been around i mean if you dig into his history it's it's really inspiring and and vast. I didn't realize how big it was. And I first became aware of him when I was in seventh grade. He was the first drum clinic I ever went to. Oh, really? Yeah, my, that's awesome. My percussion teacher took me and a friend to to the, see this guy give a drum clinic at a Holiday Inn in Frederick, Maryland. And <clears throat> I sat probably third row, and and he talked for a long time, and it was it was amazing. He in that one hour he exposed me to Chick Webb, Baby Dodds. Uh, Big Sid Catlett, Max Roach, Jim Chapin, names that I just instantly went home and tried to figure out who these guys were. Okay, cool. Like That's his awesome. first question was like, who's the first drum set player? That was like his first question. And people were saying Gene Krupa. And even <laughs> that I was like, Gene Krupa, I don't even know who that is. I mean, I was probably 13 at the time. Okay. And then he got down to like someone said Chick Webb and he's like, That's really good. That's really close, but no. <laughs> and he's like, Baby Dodd. So it was a great lesson and it kind of, I mean, I, I will say that I'd never seen anyone play drums that way before because he's a great drummer as well. So that put me at a whole different level of, oh, that's where you can go with this drumming thing. Yeah. So it was pretty huge. I don't think I would have practiced nearly as hard or I probably wouldn't even have stuck with it had I not gone to that clinic that day. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I think everybody's first um, experience with a professional drummer up close is kind of a life-changing event because you realize what's possible, you know, and being able to see a drum set clinician, that's a scary one. Cause if you see somebody perform, like if you go see, you know, your first jazz concert ends up being Bramford Marsalis with Willie Jones, the third on drums, you're going to see Willie Jones, the third do what he does best. He performs and you don't have to worry if he has a good personality. You don't have to worry if he can handle a mic. He just gets up there. He does his thing, and you're going to be inspired. But going to your first drum set clinic is risky because not only are you seeing them perform on the instrument, but they have to handle an hour all by themselves or two hours all by themselves and handle the microphone and, and answer your questions. And if if you get somebody that is, you know, maybe they're great at the drums, but they don't know how to explain themselves, then it could turn you off. Or if you get somebody that's just frustrated with their lot in life and they thought they should be out on tour with you know kiss at the moment but they're giving a drum clinic in 1984 you never know what's going to happen and so the one thing that really impressed me with dom the very first time i ever saw him do anything it was in seattle we were doing the uh don bennett you know puts on the 
the big beat drum right. thing. Woodstick? Um, Is that the wood woodstick? Stick? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Woodstick. And I think Dom was hosting it the last year that I did it. So it was myself, uh, Todd Zuckerman, JP, um, uh, Alan White. And Dom was hosting it. And I'd never met Dom, but obviously I know who he is from education, from being a fan of educators. And when he grabbed the microphone, I instantly was like, okay, you know, this dude knows how to handle a microphone. This dude knows how this dude knows public speaking like the back of his hand. Oh, my goodness. And that's something, you know, as as a clinician and as an educator, you know, I've seen enough drumming to last me a lifetime. So when you're great at the drums, I appreciate it, but it doesn't really blow me away because I've I've done clinics with Thomas Lang and Chris Coleman and JP and Matt. So I've seen some amazing drumming in my life, but I don't always see great speakers when it comes to the drum industry. And to see him hold a microphone and just captivate a crowd instantly, it was really impressive, you know. Um, yeah. And and he didn't look. I mean, he just he just walks around with just oozing inspiration. I thought it was really cool. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> he talked about it in the interview about uh, at the time when he was like college age, he was already taking private lessons with Joe Morello. So he figured, you know, why go to music school to study with someone who's not quite Joe Morello? I'm already, <laughs> I'm already right. studying with Joe Morello. So he, he was, I mean, really smart. He ended up taking business classes, uh, psychology classes, and marketing and uh, communications. So he learned, he learned how to speak, what to say to these people, and how to run a business. That was, that was his college experience. So when he came out of college, he had you know, years of studying with one of the best teachers of all time. And he had a degree in all of these business slash public speaking areas. So he was tailor made. And and early on in his career, when he became a, I mean, the clinician thing, that was one of the things I wanted to know, like, did you just want to be a drum clinician? Because, you know, our generation, you could kind of say you wanted to do that. Like it was, it was a viable option for a while there. But he tells a story about how it just, it just happened naturally where, you know, people he was working with would ask him to come talk to his band class, and then, then they would tell the, another teacher, and then they would bring students in from other schools, and then eventually the guys at Tama Drums found out about him, and next thing you know, he's on tour with Simon Phillips as a clinician. Wow. And the real That's skill so that cool. and he was mainly brought in to be the opening act slash master of ceremonies. Sure. So right away, it was his skill as a communicator that got him into that career path totally and he and i like you know like you said he's a great drummer for sure but where he really shines is is speaking and and inspiring people and that's what we need i mean there's not everybody has to be put in the same category you don't have to turn drumming into an mma fight where you're matching up you know trey cool from green day against Vinny caliuta what you can do is allow them to exist in their own categories and one of those one of the biggest and most important categories we have is ambassadors. I, I look at, you know, uh, Travis Barker as a fantastic ambassador as far as how many people started playing drums because of Travis Barker. Quite a few. So we right. need guys like him. You don't have to pit him against Dave Weckl um, in some weird cage match. And same with Don Famularo. He's a great drummer for sure, but where he really shines is in his ability to inspire people to not only start playing the drums, but more importantly, to keep playing the drums. And I think that in that, you know, he really is at the top of his class of, you know, drumming inspiration and ambassadors for our instruments. So it's really cool. Yeah. And I mean, he's a he got me fired up to want to learn and, and start doing clinics. 
It just got me fired up. Like, I could do this. <laughs> you know? I could totally do this. I could do this thing. But, yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> Dude, you, you should. I mean, it's going to be close enough to you. You should come in. Uh, actually, that'd be a really cool thing. Maybe you could come to the Common Thread drum camp and just do like a an hour guest spot, you know, play a little bit and then talk about your role at Modern Drummer and, and stuff like that and then field some questions. Consider it done. Sweet chicken will, gumbo. You know, I will tell you, I mean, this is the biggest fear as a child for me was public speaking, like the biggest fear. And I, wow. and I, I purposely went into education as my profession to just to tackle it. I mean, it was crippling, you know? So when I was like student teaching and I had to get in front of a class of high school kids who just didn't give a heck about me right? and like conduct them. And actually after college, I was a, uh, I was a substitute teacher for all the band directors in my County. So not only did wow. I have to go be a substitute teacher where, I mean, you know, the students just, they really want to take advantage of you when you're a substitute teacher. But then I would go in with a lesson plan that actually involved them getting their instruments out and playing right. through their repertoire. So, oh. I mean, every day it was like sweaty palms. Like, no, I got to get over this fear. Well, dude, com- common thread is your chance to shine, buddy. It's your chance to shine. Consider it done. I'll be there. Awesome, man. That'd be great. All right. Well, let's get into some gear review stuff. Uh, this week we are taking a listen and a look at the zildjian k custom dark crashes so and this is what 19 and 20 yeah they they just fleshed out the line with some bigger models that uh i think it stopped at 18 it was like a 14 through 18 were the sizes so uh, the series k custom dark's been around for forever but now they're just adding more sizes to the lineup yeah they had artists who were just requesting them um so they sent got it a pair to me 19 and 20 inch uh they have a larger bell than the normal k custom darks and i mean they they were great i mean i think i think everyone kind of falls into the trap of of wanting the most unique sounding symbols to get their signature sound but these these are just like they work great on every gig kind of sound so they sound like symbols yeah and 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 exactly what you need for most situations you know you don't need your super trashy wobbly crash symbol uh but they're bigger, so they also give a little bit more of that. There's a little bit darker tone, but they're they're still just clean, explosive, really expressive crash cymbals. So they're they're actually uh, I use them as a primary setup all summer long. Just those oh, wow. two, those two crashes with like a what was I using a 22 inch K ride and 16 inch hi hats. So that was like my my summer festival setup with these two crashes. Now, do you know the K Custom line do you, or the K line? Are they still made over in Turkey or are they all made here now? None of their stuff is made in Turkey. It's all okay. made in, in Boston. The, Even the, the Krope line? Yep. The, the Ks that were made in Turkey were was a different Zildjian. That's a, that's oh, okay. a whole history okay. of that. They got murky. Fred Gretsch, I believe, or maybe not Fred. Or somebody at Gretsch was importing the Ks from Turkey back in the 50s, early days. So those old Ks that you think of are not the ones made here. Okay, got it. So so all this stuff is made here, and where's their factory? Is it in Boston? It's outside of Boston. I don't okay. I remember the exact town. But somewhere but it's in, in that area. Yeah. Got it. Cool, man. Very cool. I can all I would say is um, web developer for Zildjian. Please don't make the first sample of your symbol the bell. <laughs> I went I went to their page to check these things out and I pressed play and it doesn't really show you what you're getting and it was the bell and it and then it, it doesn't loop. It just I mean it, it just plays the bell and then that's it. Yeah. And then you have to find where to select the side <laughs> of the crash and I was like okay cuz I really thought that was the crash. I was like wow these are terrible. Yeah. Um 
So you know, you always want to you know put your product in the best light. Uh, think of think of Apple and their their uh, their out of box experience is, is the best. And you know, I would hate for somebody to be turned off by these symbols because they were like, yeah, it was a little pingy to me. And it's like, well, it's because you heard the bell as the sample. <laughs> yeah, no, they're really smooth and rich, and they play really well with Zildjian's regular A series. Oh yeah, yeah. So sure. uh, I've done that nice. a bunch too, where I would put up a 19 inch A and then a 19 inch K dark, so you get the same kind of like size of tone, like same bigness, but you get a bright and a dark, and they blend really Very well. Cool. Whereas the Kropes, uh, which I also love, that's like your old school Turkish sounding kind of funky. So the 19 inch Karope isn't going to play as well with like an A series 19. Gotcha, gotcha. Awesome, man. Well, let's take a listen to these things. Right now it's time to get to our picks of the week. Uh, this time, my pick of the week is actually a book, and it is called "The Drum Set Soloist" by Steve Houghton. And this book was, I think, besides Pete Magadini's own books, this was the first book that Pete uh, had me buy when I was taking lessons with him. And the whole the book you're not really buying it for the book; you're really buying it for the CD that comes with it. Now, the reason why this is my pick of the week is because this was my very first experience with play-alongs. And it was, I've never had drumless tracks that were meant to be drumless tracks. I mean, this is a fairly old book, but every kind of basic genre, from jazz to fusion and odd time and some world groove stuff, there's a play-along for it. And that was a really cool thing because he would put you in an environment, say like a 12-bar blues uh, jazz form, and you would play through the head of the tune, and then there would be finger snaps for these four-bar solos or 12-bar solos that you'd be taking. And like I said, this was my first experience with play-alongs. Now, obviously, on my site and a lot of educator sites, we all have play-alongs now. But this was pretty groundbreaking to me. Um, and on a lot of the tracks, there's demos. There's like a demo version than the real track. So there's there's Steve Houghton playing. And I just I think what I really liked about it was that 
I could tell that th- there was a studio session booked for these musicians to make play-alongs for drummers. And I could feel that coming through the recording. And I just thought that was really cool. And I still use those same tracks. It comes with about 30 tracks. And I still use them for my students all the time. Yeah, I use it all. T- I mean, that was like my uh, mostly my college experience was working through his stuff. Cool. Yeah, really? really? Really good stuff. That one. Yeah. And even uh, like graduate school auditions, his, it's kind of a standard uh, repertoire. It's really, and it's, it's pretty challenging when he gets, cause <clears throat> excuse me, when you do those trading at the end of it, he'll take the, the snaps out. He takes out. the snaps out. Oh, yeah. so you're doing four, eight bar, 16 bar solos with no reference to time. Yeah. Uh, humbling to say the least. Yeah, and then uh, the fast modal tune is at about three twenty, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. yeah, and he just, and those snaps go away, and it's just it's like, ah, where's my, where's my safety net? Yeah. But yeah, well, I, I'm glad you know that. But the, like, um, that was something that Steve made me, or not Steve, Pete made me get, and uh, Pete Magadini would kind of set up our lessons and say, okay, now that you've learned this skill, we have to put it into a musical environment. Otherwise, it's just a random drum set skill. It's not a music skill. And so, you know, I'd be working on say triplet phrases in groupings of four going you know over the bar line and then he would have me put that into the steve houghton stuff so when you listen to it guys you know it it is dated but it's dated because it was recorded a long time ago but the jazz stuff is pretty timeless um some of the fusion stuff i mean it's cool like he even does it by record label there's an ecm you know label vamp in there style thing so I, I still use it a lot and I, I, I love it, you know, and I actually, even when I'm having my guy, Dave McKay, make our play alongs, sometimes I'll send him the Steve Houghton track and say something like this, you know, yeah. because like I said, you can feel through the recordings that this was meant for drummers rather than somebody just taking the drum tracks out of a song and giving it to you. And I really like that a lot. So yeah. that's my pick of the week. What about you, buddy? I discovered, uh, <clears throat> do you subscribe to lynda.com? Of course, that was how I learned web development and graphic design. That's how I built Mike'sLessons.com was I couldn't oh, afford yeah. anyone to do it. So about eight years ago, I got on Lynda.com and I started my subscription and I learned web development, graphic design, audio editing, video editing, everything. Wow. Well, I just discovered it. <laughs> then Via... let's point out it's uh, Linda with a Y, yeah, Y-N-D-A. Yeah. So I was just, uh, I'm, you know, my... Uh... My weekly obsession is is Josh Free, so I'm trying to learn how to play Judith note for note. So I've just been like YouTube searching the heck out of Josh Free just to get every trying to absorb every vibe because he's I mean he's like my guy for modern rock and he's been my guy since uh, I mean eighth grade. But I wanted to go extra and really dig into him. So as I was YouTube him, I found this video uh, preview of him in the studio with Ryan Hewitt. Yep, doing a drum session. And it's so, like DVD quality video. Yeah. So the preview is, is like, I don't know, a minute and a half long on YouTube. But it, the actual full course is on lynda.com, which is ridiculous. It's it's a full day of recording session with Josh Freese and Ross Garfield of Drum Doctors in, I can't remember the studio, maybe Sunset Sound in L.A., with Ryan Hewitt giving you play-by-play of how he does everything to get a drum recording. Everything. And then there's a one about how to choose the gear. There's one how to mix it. But the the, the course with Josh Fries, you get to hear him play the track down once, like his first run through. And you get to see, I think he does four takes. So you get to hear and see how he goes from nailing it. The first take, he nails it. By the fourth take, it's damn near flawless. And he had to just overdub like one thing where he hit his six together. But but the, all along the way, uh, Hewitt's telling you about how to EQ the snare and... 
they're tuning the snare and, and dampening the snare more and changing the snare and messing with the room mics. Um, so yeah, it's on lynda.com and they do a, like a, I think it's a 10 day free trial or maybe it's a 30 day free trial. So you could, you could join, check that out, search around the site, see if there's any more content for you. If not, you can just cancel your membership, but I would highly recommend it. It's the best, uh, drums recording tutorial I've ever seen. It's gotta be, there's gotta be three hours of content on there. No, it's incredible. And that, yeah, that's, I learned everything that I learned about how, um, you know, building the company that I have was from lynda.com. And, and even, even recently, you know, I just switched uh, to Canon C100s, which is a very huge departure from just like your basic DSLR camera that I've always shot things with before. And I instant, you know, I've had my membership to lynda.com for seven or eight years now. And there's been two years at a, of a time that I wouldn't use it, but I knew at some point something's going to come up and I won't understand it. And I trust them for education. And so I was able to learn all about my camera and how to, you know, get it, get the best out of this, you know, new foreign camera and the lenses I was using. Um, and then, yeah, I saw the Josh freeze thing. And what was shocking to me was, which I think people would really learn a lot about was when they're working on the snare muffling there, you know, I think it's his tech that's in there or maybe the drum doctor guy that's in there. That's yeah, kind of gaffing it up. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're, you're hearing the audio from inside the room and you're thinking like dude that is way too much tape there's no way yeah. and then you then you hear the audio from what the microphone's hearing and the and the room mics and it's like uh that sounds amazing yep so it'll it'll really teach you to understand that whatever you're hearing with your ears don't go by that record it then go listen to the recording and hear what the microphones are hearing because it's very different than what you're hearing with your ears but yeah that's a fantastic tutorial yeah it's deep on many levels just to watch josh do a session. I mean, that's, there's no con that doesn't exist on the internet anywhere else to see Josh Freeze do a recording session. So yeah, that's worth it for me, but then it's worth it for they, that again, just the, all the mixing. He, he gives you every little bit of detail. If you're in the, if you're looking to start recording drums, start there. Josh Freeze recording session on lynda.com. Boom. All right, buddy. Well, have an amazing week. I know you've got stuff to do and, uh, I'm going to keep practicing. And right now I'm going to record today is, uh, buzzing the backbeat on the live lessons so oh, sweet try that yeah, with some so. with some paper tape to your head see what that does. i'm doing it i'm doing it i'm filling my bass drum with tin foil and i'm putting some binder paper on my drum head <laughs> i mean that's what when you have a multi-thousand dollar drum set that's the first thing you should do is throw some <laughs> cotton balls in the floor tom tin foil in the bass drum and put some binder paper on your snare drum you're good to go <laughs> yep all right buddy have a great week i'll see you soon later